Hey everybody, it's Alan Ward here from the Advisor Marketing Club podcast and in today's episode, episode four, we're talking all about robo-advice. You know, lately in our industry, there's been a lot of discussion around robo-advice and how it is bringing change to the financial planning and financial advice industry. And so today, I thought it'd be a really good time to um, talk a little bit about my views on robo-advice and where I think it's heading and how it's going to impact the industry. And not whether it will impact the industry, how it will impact the industry. Because when I think about it, robo-advice, um, it's just really another name for technology. And in fact, I actually don't like the term robo-advice. Look, I use it because everybody else uses it. Um, but I find that it means a lot of different things to different people. So um, for a start, a lot of the robo-advice um, providers that I look at don't really provide much in the way of advice, but they're actually providing an online tool that's really an investment portal. It's, um, it's an investment management tool. So really what they're providing is a bit of a risk profile, bit of a discussion around the different portfolios that they put together. Usually they're very low cost portfolios with ETFs and that sort of stuff. And, you know, visually on the screen, you can see the uh, impact. If I go to a more aggressive portfolio or a more conservative portfolio, you pick what you want. Um, there's no real advice in there at all. And they essentially manage your investment for you at what will be a low cost. So that is one aspect of robo-advice. Um, go to the other end of the spectrum and you're looking at online advice models, uh, which is still very much in their infancy. But don't discount them. I think the biggest problem that financial planners have is that they discount the ability of a computer to be able to replicate the advice process. Um, because a lot of advisors will say, but you know, I sit with clients, I ask them lots of questions and do all this sort of stuff. Well, so what? So can a computer. If it gets programmed well, it can do exactly what an advisor does more consistently. And it's probably safer from a compliance point of view as well, because the same series of questions are being asked. Yes, up front, there's a lot of criticism at the moment. What if the algorithm's wrong? You know, people are saying. But is that any more flawed than a human giving financial advice? What if you forget a certain strategy or forget to check something and it leads to a bigger tax impost for the client? I mean, you make mistakes. So I think what you'll find is that the robo-advice algorithms will improve very much over the next months, you know, if, if not years, and get to the point where they can deliver advice in a more reliable and consistent manner than a lot of planners can. So let's just take a step back and talk about your value proposition and how it may compare to the robo-advice providers. Because one of the problems that I see is that we get sucked into trying to compete against the robo-advice models. But if they're providing an online investment model, well, that shouldn't be what your value proposition is. Now, I've been in the industry since 1996, so here in Australia, I've seen a massive amount of evolution and change through our industry. And in particular, more and more advisors now are talking about their client value proposition. Now, if I think back to 1996, 1997, even the early 2000s, the idea of a value proposition, well, what the heck was that? Why do I need one? Because particularly here in Australia, um, you know, a lot of advisors are giving advice around Centrelink, social security um, strategies. People needed to come in and get advice. They were retiring. They had lumps of money, bigger lumps of money than they've ever had in their life. They needed to get some advice on how to manage that money. 
Um, so the CVP, the client value proposition of many advisors was just non-existent because business walked in the door. Uh, there were probably more clients than there were um, advisors, but more clients looking for advice than there were advisors. So uh, for a lot of advisors, who cares? You know, I don't need a CVP. I'm getting all the business that I need. Then as time went on, um, it very much became a value proposition of, I pick good investments or good insurance products, depending on, on what side of the fence you were sitting on. Um, so that became a value proposition. I give, um, select good investments. I get good returns was another one. Um, let's all promise something that you have absolutely zero control over delivering because uh, you can't manipulate markets last thing that I checked. And then it's evolved now to a value proposition around I deliver tailored advice. That's the one that I'm hearing a lot of at the moment when I talk to advisors and say, well, how are you different uh, from the advisor next door to you or down the road or in a different city? Oh, well, I give tailored advice. Um, I sit down with the clients, understand their goals, and I give tailored advice around their goals. The problem is the guy next door to you or the girl next door to you is saying exactly the same thing. You know, so when you're a client looking in at the industry and everyone's saying, hey, the thing that makes me different is that I give you tailored advice, but everybody's telling you that, then there kind of is no difference. And these value propositions are just very bland, very similar, and they're not differentiating you from any of your competitors. Now, one of the other questions you've got to ask is forget what you think your value proposition is. What do your clients think it is? What is it that your clients think that you deliver to them? Now, this is the important question. You know, I've written before about how when I was in um, uni doing an MBA that I had a marketing lecturer, a top guy, and he used to always say to us, I don't care what you think. I care what your target market thinks. So when you're answering a question in class, don't say, I think. You've got to say, the target market evidence says this. So as an advisor, respectfully, I don't care what you think it is that you deliver, deliver to your clients. The important thing is what do your clients think that you deliver to them? Now, this to me is why robo-advice can become a big threat because I don't know that your clients think that you can do half the things that you think you can. I think a lot of clients see you as the investment guy, the insurance guy, the superannuation guy, if you're in America, the 401k guy, um, or girl, not being sexist. Um, I think that's how they view you because you've never given them an opportunity to see the wider range of things that you can do that perhaps aren't just around products. You see, when we really dig into it in terms of financial planning that, that perhaps will differentiate us, we talk about helping clients achieve their goals. You know, the, I mean, one thing I say to my clients is that the money is a means to an end. You know, um, life's not about having the most money, but it's about the experiences of things that money can buy or money can't buy um, that gives us a satisfying life. So we say that we're about helping clients achieve their goals, but where's the actual evidence of that? Where do we actually demonstrate to our clients that we do that? You know, a lot of client reviews, when I talk with advisor colleagues of mine, a lot of them are spending more time in their client reviews going over investment performance than they are about progress towards goals. Now, that's nuts because you can't control investment performance. If you're hanging your hat on picking fund manager A instead of fund manager B and manager A does okay for a quarter, well, big deal. What, what control have you had over that? Where's the rocket science in that? 
all you've done is looked on past performance in most cases and said, well, this one looks better than that one. If you're a bit more advanced than some planners, you've gone here in Australia to Morningstar or Mercer, looked at their fund research and looked at who's rated well and why and so on. You may even get really into it and look at blending a couple of funds together to look at what gives a good outcome. But really, you have zero control over markets. And if you're going to sit there in a client review and say, hey, this quarter you did pretty well, aren't I a good person? Well, then when the markets go down, you've got to sit there and take responsibility for that as well. One of the problems is that we talk about progress towards goals or helping clients achieve goals, but we do very little at tracking their progress towards their goals. Now, most financial planning software providers, they do a really good bit around the product side of things, you know, giving advice on a product. Most statement of advices here in Australia are all around selling a product um, because that's the way the legislation is. So we've become very good at delivering compliant advice to clients that involves a product. But what if it doesn't involve a product? You know, have ask your licensee the question, if a client comes into me and just wants some general advice on investing or salary sacrificing, how do I give them that advice? And you'll actually find it's, in some cases, it could actually be more work to give them that advice because you can't recommend a specific fund. You're using, say, a generic example than if you were actually recommending a specific fund. In a lot of cases with financial planning software, as I said, they do the product advice very, very well. But when it comes to helping clients clarify their goals, set their goals, and then importantly, tracking progress towards goals, they really do a poor job at that. Now, robo-advice, let's have a, a talk about what they sell because most of them, as I said earlier, there's a product involved. There's an investment management, a portfolio management type um, sale that's happening there at the back end. But what they're really selling to people, and get this, is convenience. Let me say that again. What they're really selling to people is convenience. You know, it's an online model. So I can sit there in my pajamas at 11 o'clock at night if I want and do my research. I don't have to go in to a financial planner's office and sit down and do a fact find and then wait a couple of weeks while they produce some recommendations and then come back in and see them taking time off work or whatever. I can do it at a time that's convenient to me and at a place that's convenient to me. Because if all I'm doing is looking at something that's going to help me pick a good investment and also look at my goals, if I have the choice between doing it online or go, having to travel for half an hour and then sit face to face with somebody, I'd probably prefer to do it online unless there's some real value in traveling to see that person, unless they're going to do something a bit, a bit differently. So to me, the robo-advice models are selling convenience. They're making it easier to do a basic financial plan. And look, I'll use that term loosely because it's probably not a full financial plan. But for a lot of clients, they're comfortable with what it provides. So it's also low minimums. You know, so some financial advisors say, well, I only see clients that have got, you know, $100,000, half a million dollars and so on. Some investment funds in particular have minimums. So, yeah, you're happy to invest, but you need to have, you know, $10,000 to invest in this fund. Well, there's a lot of them now that have zero minimums that will start from scratch, you know, and labelled and put small amounts in. Uh, if you look at here in Australia, there's the Acorn one, uh, which essentially is all about just investing your spare change. It's, a, it's an awesome concept um, because, again, they're just using technology to make it easy to do that. Um, over in the UK, I've been looking at a robo-provider there um, called Nutmeg, 
And look, they do something similar. Very low um, barriers to entry, very quick and easy to get started up. Now, the value proposition of these robo-advice models really simply is around the ease of investing and being able to set up and track goals and get instant feedback on changes. And this is something that I think is really cool as well. And that I don't see a lot of advisors or a lot of advice software um, doing very, very well. You know, a lot of them, they will have a, a basic risk profiler of some sort that you would go through, asking you some questions around your investing experience and your attitude to, um, to risk. Now, when I say risk, I'm probably talking more with these sorts of things around volatility. You know, what happens if the market drops by 10%? What will you want to do? If you invest in these growth investments, here's the likelihood of a negative return. One in every five years, one in every four years, one in every seven years, and so on. So what happens is that you can, you can sit in there and you can say, okay, well, here's my goal. And if you think of it as some different sliders, so, okay, to achieve this goal of, say, saving $20,000 over the next five years, you need to save X amount of money per month at this interest rate and the time frame that, say, is five years. Is that doable? Well, what if I go to get a higher interest rate? How do I, a higher rate of return? How do I do that? So that means taking on more risk. So move that slider up. What if I'm getting 7% instead of 5%? What does that do to help me achieve my goals? Instant feedback, folks. You can move a slider and you can get your feedback straight away. Hmm, what if that's too hard? What if I can't do it in five years? Well, what about six years? What if you push the goal out another year and then you could invest the same amount of money and you're going to make it and perhaps take on less risk if you need to? What if I have to do it in three years? Well, folks, if this is the maximum amount of money that you can save, then the only other lever you've got, if three years is non-negotiable and that X amount of money per month that you can save is non-negotiable, then the only other option is to try and get a higher return. And here's the implications of that. Here's the risks. You know, there's like the full Monte Carlo simulations, the full range of returns, you know. Um, you know, the most optimistic result gets you here. The most pessimistic result based on history gets you here. The average financial advisor doesn't do that. They certainly don't do it in a first appointment. But here I can sit online and I can be within five minutes of entering my details in. I can be getting instant feedback and looking at all that. Now, let's say I go with it. Let's say I commit to that goal and my investment fund's set up and I start saving. You know what? Each time I log in to that robo provider, I can track my progress. Straight away, it's there graphically in a lot of cases because a lot of people are visual people. And... You know, I can see, okay, yep, I thought I'd be here in terms of the plan and I'm either ahead of plan or behind plan. I need to do something about that. Instant feedback. And for some of them, I believe you don't even need to log in. Now, if this isn't already the case, this should be the case. They'll send you push notifications on your phone. You know, badges, that sort of stuff. You know, if you've got a Fitbit, you know what that's about. You know, you walk X number of steps, here's a badge. You know, if you go up, um, certain number of flights of stairs. Here's the Eiffel Tower badge, or here's the the uh, one that you've walked the same height as the airplane, or whatever. So that sort of stuff is there, and that's encouraging. You know, for, as a Fitbit user, I get that sort of stuff and think, okay, I'll, I'll walk a bit more or do a bit more because I'm getting rewarded by these badges and stuff like that. So the robo advisors are doing that very, very well because they're using technology. The average financial advisor does this really, really poorly. The other thing with robo-advice is that the investment performance is secondary. It's, it's not the main driver as I see it, the performance that is. The ease of setting up an investment, yep, that's a big tick. And the online nature, yep. The convenience nature, yep. But the actual performance is a secondary factor because a lot of them, what they're really looking at is 
a more compelling value proposition, which is low cost, because they're using exchange traded funds, those sorts of things, and actively managed with regular rebalancing. So they set their asset allocations, and then a lot of them, you know, monthly, weekly, whatever, they're um, buying, selling to rebalance back to the recommended asset allocation. Does the average financial planner do that? How do you do that? Because I know in our business, we run some model portfolios, and to be able to rebalance like that, because of the way that they're structured, because of the constraints that we operate under, we have to deliver an advice document to every client that we want to change. Now, that's a lot of work. And we need to get a yes from them before we can go and change those portfolios. I mean, these guys are doing it just pretty much automatically. You know, there's a computer that rebalances that. It's a massive difference to what the average financial planner can offer. And, you know, before you go um, belittling them and saying, well, they're only using, you know, ETFs and index funds, of course they're not going to get as good a return over the long run. Can you prove that? Because the average financial planner, my experience with them, is that they all think that they can pick good investments back to that old value proposition. They think that they're skilled at this sort of stuff, but where's the back testing? Where is the actual evidence that your clients in their portfolios have done X percent and so on? Even if you run model portfolios, you know, which are perfectly allocated in terms of their, 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 their balancing, the average client doesn't have those exact same weightings unless you're doing what the robo guys are doing and rebalancing regularly. So the average client, you know, your model might have a 20% weighting towards these shares. Your client might have a 23% weighting because of growth that they've had. And so their performance will be slightly different to your perfect model that you will then say, well, here's my performance. So again, one of the things that we lack in this area is evidence. You know, the ability to go to our clients and say truthfully, yep, here's the actual returns that, that I've provided. What RoboAdvice does is it systemizes it extremely well. Whilst the performance isn't, it's important, but it's not their major selling proposition. It's more around the convenience and so on. So what is it that you do differently? You see, this is the important question because I was thinking that recently about this issue of, of you know, selling a commodity. Um, you know, if I want to go and buy a TV, for instance, and I know the make and model of TV that I want, then essentially my purchase decision at one level is a commodity-driven decision. It's this identical thing. I can go to store A, store B, or store C. I know exactly what I want. So really my decision comes back to price, unless they're going to offer something different and they can differentiate themselves. So for some electrical stores, it could be something like, well, we'll give you free delivery and installation for that. Okay, well, that just saves me a bit of time or whatever. But for a lot of them, the other option, of course, I can go online and buy that same TV. So if it's exactly the same thing and I get exactly the same warranty with it, well, that gets delivered to my home. So it's this thing of when it's a commodity, price becomes the main factor in determining do I buy it or not or which one do I buy. So I think for the average financial planner, what you need to do is take yourself out of the commodity world and be completely different to the robo-competitors and your local competitors as well. You need to answer this question. What is it that you do differently to other financial advisors? Now, straight away, with robo-advice as it is today, one of the things I think advisors do very differently is the human touch. You know, it's being able to speak with people, it's being able to sit in front of people and being like a mix between a counsellor and a coach 
and a financial advisor. It's being able to coach people and keep them accountable, to sit and to look at them in the eye and say, you know what, six months ago, you told me that you were going to start saving $1,000 a month and you haven't done it consistently. Why not? Thinking this through this week about the gym analogy that, look, anyone can go to a gym. You pay your money and you're in. You're in. But for some people, they prefer to pay more to a personal trainer who will keep them more accountable, who will make sure that they turn up when they say they're going to turn up, and will make sure that their workouts are very, very effective. You know, I heard a a personal trainer speaking the other day in in a podcast, and one of the things he was talking about was saying, I don't do any online training. Um, I like to do my training in the gym one-on-one with the person that I'm training because I can watch them. I can touch them as they're lifting weights and doing things and I can make sure that the right muscles are getting worked out as they should be. He said, I can't do that online. So take that back to your analogy with financial planning. Yes, anyone can go to a gym. So anyone can go to a robo provider and, and, and you know, buy an investment fund. What you're delivering is the personal training. What you're delivering is that accountability. Um, you know, with a PT, if it's, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning and I don't want to get up and go to the gym, but I know my PT's there waiting for me and I've paid money um, to go and see that person, have them kick my butt, I'm going to get up and go and do it. So it is with a financial advisor. If people are paying you money and you're delivering value, they're going to keep on paying that money. But the issue is value. So I really think that as a financial planner, we need to stop talking about you know everything coming back to investments and insurance and the products. And instead, we need to talk about the value of the advice that we provide the client. We need to talk about the accountability, how we hold people's hands when they're going through tough times, when they've got big financial decisions to make, that we can hold their hands, that we can give them good, impartial advice because we know their circumstances, we know them as a person, we know what they're comfortable with, we know importantly what their goals and objectives are and we're on their side, we're helping them work towards achieving those things. And remember, when you're different from your competitors, you don't need to be the cheapest, unless that's your value proposition, in which case you're just going to get undercut and undercut out the market. Because most financial planning businesses that I know of don't have the scale um, to be able to um, compete on price. You don't need to compete on price if you can differentiate yourself. I listen to a number of business podcasts, and some of them have Q&As on them. And one of the big questions is, how can I compete against lower cost providers or people who undercut my price? I'm a professional designer. I can charge $2,000 for a logo, but someone else will charge $200 for it. How do I get people to pay $2,000 for my logo? It's those sorts of questions. The simple answer all the time is, if you're just delivering the same old stuff as everybody else, then it's always going to be a price-driven decision. But if you are seen as different from everybody else and you can deliver something that is different from what everybody else is delivering, yes, it's still a logo, but it's the quality of that logo and people understand the quality and so on, um, then people will pay for it. It's as simple as that. But what you've got to realize is that in today's world is that if you're the logo developer, you're not just competing with people in your local area now. You're competing with people worldwide. There are quality designers over in you know, India and Asia and places like that who will deliver really good stuff for a fraction of the price that you can deliver. So you've got to work out your value add. What is it that you provide to your clients? Now, I want to just finish up by talking about the threat of technology. 
or is it an opportunity? But don't discount it or don't ignore it. You know, I read this article a couple of weeks ago from somebody who was looking at the industry and I think in 10 years time and, you know, um, suggesting here's how it could look and so on. And they kind of dismissed technology and robo-advice in, in kind of sort of one paragraph where they said that there were problems with the algorithms around robo-advice that never really took off. Sorry, I just don't believe that that's the way it's going to be in the future. You know, I was reading this um, really, really interesting book and the guy talks about robots in it. And he talks about how, say in warehouses these days, you've got robots that are going stack shelves. So they've got, you know, boxes or crates with inventory in them. They're all barcoded so they can pick up the crate, they can move it to the certain shelf and put it there. And then, you know, when you need to retrieve that, bang, off they go again. They know exactly where to go. Up they go, retrieve that box, that crate, and, and off they go. Well, they've developed robots now. That, see, that's okay if everything's uniform. Um, but there's this example in this book I was reading, and I've got a link to it in the show notes, where they're talking about uh, one robot now that can sort out, say you've got just a heap of boxes and crates, all different size, all just in one big mess on the floor. So they're not stacked neatly, they're just all over the place. This robot now can pick them up, sort them out, like stack them neatly, scan them with the barcode, barcode and work out exactly where they're supposed to go. So it can make sense and disorder, essentially. And that's now what it can do. Uh, we're talking about driverless cars. That's a whole other episode. But think of the impact that that's going to have on life in general. Um, imagine being able to you know, just hop in a car and be driven to work and being able to sit in the back seat and read or have your breakfast or whatever. Like, there's been some massive changes with that. So don't think for a minute that the financial planning industry isn't going to be disrupted by technology. That is just a, an archaic way of thinking. That is like what got Kodak into trouble. They did not see that people still wanted to take photos. It's just that the way they did it, they didn't want to have to print things out. Anymore. There was a new way of doing it. It was all digital. So don't ignore technology. I was listening to Gary V's podcast recently, and he talked about, he said, makes these great questions, because why wasn't Uber invented by a taxi company? You know, why wasn't Airbnb invented by Hilton Hotels? Why was it that it took somebody from outside those industries to come in and basically develop a new model, a new way of doing things and delivering to people what they actually wanted? You know, so that's really why is it that in our industry, we're waiting for other businesses to come in and disrupt our industry? Why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we as advisors out there and working on technology to improve the advice delivery that we give to our clients? Another thing you've got to understand related to this is that consumers are very happy to go direct. It's quick. It's easy. They can do it when they want. It's normally very economical for them as well. They've been going to financial planners because in a lot of cases, that's the only way they can access these products. If you need life insurance, we can only go through a financial advisor to get it, or at least that's the way it was. But now there's different ways that they can access a life insurance product or a, a retirement savings product and so on. And a lot of them are. And why not? Because they can go online. Uh, said they can sit there at 10 o'clock at night in their pajamas. They can spend 10 minutes or so on a website. It can do a risk profile. It can spit out a recommendation. I know it's not completely tailored advice, but you know what? It's better than doing nothing. For a lot of them and you know what a lot of them don't know the value in doing anything different and that's your job as a financial advisor to educate people on that if all they want is a product great like where's the problem you know they're not maybe getting the best but they're getting something that suits them i'm particularly thinking of insurance around this so your value proposition needs to be around being different 
Because be aware that these product manufacturers, they're going to start going direct to the consumer. And some already have. You know, they'll do deals. They'll set up other companies so it'll be a different brand name and so on. But they're backing it. So they're going to go direct and they're going to cut you out in a lot of cases. Because the old model used to be all built around distribution. They needed you as an advisor to access their clients. They needed a distribution force, a sales force to access um, their potential clients. But now they can do all of that online. They don't need you as much. You know, think about it. There's less cost. If they don't have to pay you, say, a commission on an insurance product or, um, you know, ongoing revenue on an investment product um, in countries where that's still in place, think about the compliance hassles you know, the mis-selling of products and so on. Well, they can have a very defined sales process on their website so they can tick a lot of boxes off and say to the regulators, well, here's the questions we asked the client when they were signing up for our product. They were very aware of the, the risks in investing in this product and there's a general advice warning so they were warned that perhaps it wasn't the most suitable product and so on. Um, about the risk of churning? You know, I know advisors who every two or three years would get the, the client's file out and review it. And miraculously, there was another product that was better for the client, an insurance product. So let's move the client out of insurer A and put them into insurer B because they're cheaper this year. And so it went. Let's get a new commission as, as we do that as well. I'll take a new 110% commission. Thank you very much. And then two or three years later, oh, surprise, surprise, insurer B, they're no longer the cheapest. Um, let's move the client to insurer C. Now, Yes, there are cases where perhaps it is appropriate um, to give advice and help a client, but in a lot of cases, it was purely and simply churning. And if I'm an insurer, you know, I want the policy to stay with me as long as possible. I don't want it to be moved. So if I get rid of the advisor who's doing the churning out of the equation, I'm not saying everyone does that. It is a small percentage, but nonetheless, it was and perhaps still is a problem in the industry. So... From the um, insurer's point of view, yeah, they can cut out advisors in a lot of cases. I don't think they will completely. I think they will always have an advice channel for clients that want that. But I think more and more will see them go direct. And what we'll see are things like an online client portal. So the client will log in and they'll be able to see, for instance, their insurance policy. Let's say they've got life insurance. And let's say they want to increase it. So their current amount is half a million dollars. They want now $700,000. All they'll do perhaps is just increase that amount. They'll be like a little slider of the amount of cover you've got. I want to go up by $200,000. Um, okay, here's your new premium. Straight away, it'll update on the screen. And yep, do you want to proceed? Yes, I do. Hit proceed. And then once they've hit proceed, there'll be some medical questions because we're increasing insurance cover. Let's go through a quick personal statement. And remember, all we really need to know about is what's happened since you last applied for this cover. So it could even be a stripped down personal statement and so on. Probably there'll be an online request or an approval um, to get information from your doctor. Or alternatively, a lot of them now will be able to access your medical records going forward. So they'll be able to do that online as well. And, you know, within days, perhaps, or certainly within a week, bang, there's an approval. It depends um, if an underwriter even needs to be involved in it. What if it's getting too expensive and they want to uh, reduce the premium? Same deal. They can go in there, move that slider down. I've got half a million to cover. What would 300000 cost me? Because, you know, my mortgage is down. My kids are a bit older now. Oh, okay. So it's going to cost me, you know, 30 bucks a month less. Yep, that sounds good. Hit the button to proceed. Do an online signature of some sort, perhaps, and it's all done. Basically, they're going to make it very, very easy for the clients 
to manage their insurance and their portfolios online. So finally, with robo-advice, please don't discount it. Forget robo-advice. It's just technology, guys. It's just technology. Embrace technology. Look at how you can use it in your business. Progress from being a seller of product of a you know investment fund or an insurance product because that's just a commodity and that's just a race to the bottom in terms of price. Differentiate yourself. Understand your expertise. Put a value on it. Articulate that to your clients. Write lots of articles. Do lots of videos. Just get it out there, the value of what it is that you do for your clients. Take your remuneration, the way you get paid, away from a product sale and instead peg it on to the thing that you provide, your knowledge, your expertise, your experience, um, the value that you can create for the client, the financial peace of mind that you provide them. Put everything back to that and put a value on it and people will pay for it. In the last podcast, I talked about value stories and said how I want to include one on each podcast. So today I want to use a story that hopefully gets you thinking about the value that uh, you create. And it's a Picasso story and it's it's out there on the web. If you Google it, you know, Picasso story, value painting, that sort of thing, you probably find it. But basically the story goes that uh, Picasso was in the street one day painting or drawing. And this lady came to him and said, oh, can I get my picture taken? Or sort of get, get, a, get a drawing done? He goes, no problem. Sits her down does a drawing in five minutes it's done and he gives it to her and it looks great she says that's awesome um how much will that be and he says that's 200 dollars, thanks and she laughs she says 200 bucks and it took you five minutes of your time and he said no he goes that picture has taken me a lifetime to draw now i want you to think about that in the context of your financial advice businesses and your financial planning experience you have experience and expertise that the clients don't have you have that lifetime of experience. You have the ability to look at a problem and think of an answer straight away because you have the experience and you have that confidence that that is the right answer for the client. Please don't ever forget that or diminish just how valuable your knowledge and your expertise is to your clients. So that's the end of the Advisor Marketing Club podcast episode four. Um, if you have any questions and so on, just leave a message at the end because you can find this podcast, podcast, podcast over at contarmedia.com and you'll be on the front page. You'll see a link to the podcast and so on. So, And also the show notes will be there. So things I've talked about, there'll be links to it in the show notes as well. Love to answer your questions, comments, those sorts of things. So let me know what you think of the podcast and what you would like to see in future ones. Uh, quick heads up, I'm doing a lot of work on Facebook at the moment and um, finalizing a course that I'll be releasing over the next month or so, probably late May, early June on how financial advisors can use Facebook effectively. So if you sign up to the newsletter list over at contarmedia.com, and that's Contar with a C, um, then you'll get early access to that Facebook course at a reduced price once it is released. There you go, guys. Go out, think about your value proposition and how you differentiate yourselves in your financial advice business. Please don't see technology as a threat. See it as a massive opportunity to deliver advice more effectively in your business. And importantly, stay in control of these changes. Don't sit back and let the other companies make these changes and put you on the back foot. Get on the front foot make some changes in your business, articulate your value, and importantly, make sure that that shines through in everything that you do and people understand it. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time.